If we want a fast flow of change, we need to look at the, the human condition under which that can take place. Get the work done you know, more efficiently with faster flow, with better feedback loops. Today, I'm joined by Manuel Paish and Matthew Skelton, writers of the book Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. This episode is sponsored by Linear B. Give your dev team the power to improve with team-based metrics, high-risk code alerts, and the world's first project board based on real-time Git activity. Sign up free at LinearB.io. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host, Dan Lyons. I'm joined again by Manuel Paish and Matthew Skelton, writers of the book Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. Guys, thanks so much for joining us again. It's good to be here. Thanks. Manuel, what are the first steps for organizations that want to begin some type of transformation to move to these more streamlined, effective structures? Yeah, it's interesting because we recently created a couple of infographics because we get this question quite often. And again, on our website, teamtopology.com slash infographics, you will find them. Obviously, there's a lot of context for each organization that needs to, to be taken into account. But at a kind of high level, if you like, you can think about, okay, first of all, we need to agree that we want to achieve fast flow. If Matthew was saying, you know, there might be some situations where that is not the goal and then maybe team topology is not what you need to be looking at necessarily. But most organizations, if need faster flow, they need to get changes quickly to, to customers as well as respond quickly to problems. So assuming we agree that's what the organization is trying to achieve, then you can start identifying what kind of teams you have today and how do those teams fit into the patterns that we talk about in the book, the four fundamental types of teams. Because again, having clarity on what kind of teams we have is going to help us understand what are we able to do as an organization, as well as what are the bottlenecks, what are the things we need to address. And so when we do that sort of mapping, if you like, and we start looking at where more this team is a streamlined team, but maybe they don't have enough awareness of how to run their service in live environment. And so they need more kind of operational awareness, or maybe they don't actually have enough awareness on the product side and on what the customers need. And so maybe that's where they need to expand their abilities. Um, And the same for other types of teams. So that's what people tell us that the book really helps them have this sort of initial conversations around what is our purpose as, as a team? What are the gaps that we have today? And that's why the patterns in the book are useful. It's not just to say we are a streamlined team, that by itself doesn't really bring you any, any advantage. It's because we get the clarity on what are we trying to achieve? What are, are the gaps today? And so once you have that, those sort of more start to have that understanding of how we align to the fundamental topologies and types of teams, then you can also uh, start looking at where are teams overloaded with cognitive load. And so what can we do about that? How do we help these teams reduce their cognitive load so that they can actually be more productive by not having to do so much context switching, have being expected to know too many things by having either enabling teams or platform teams helping them upskill and abstract some of the, the details around lower level concerns that maybe a platform can help. Again, 
with a focus on reducing cognitive load, not necessarily about having some shared services, but actually looking at what are the problems that the teams have today and how do we address those. Um, and then you can look at other things like Conway's Law and try starting to see if we want to achieve some kind of systems and architecture for these systems, how should we align the teams to achieve that? And then obviously introduce the interaction modes as well and make sense of what is happening in the organization, right? Whenever maybe two teams were expected to collaborate to find some solution to a common problem, if you know, that collaboration went wrong or felt awkward because maybe it took way longer than we expected, or we didn't actually find a solution, or the two teams have very different understanding of the same, of the of the problem, if you like. And so maybe there's a, a problem in the, the skills of the different teams. Maybe they, one team is more experienced than another. Whatever it is that made interaction awkward, that we use that to inform how we need to evolve. Maybe in some cases, a given team needs help from an enabling team to actually learn a bit more about, I don't know, let's say infrastructure as code so that they can actually collaborate with other teams around infrastructure as code. Because if they don't have the skills, then that collaboration is not going to work very well. And so we're evolving the interactions and, and the team structures and capabilities based on that sort of ongoing feedback so that's one one way to to get started. Obviously, in some organizations, they start somewhere else, or we also have people who maybe are individual contributors, and they ask us, you know, I agree with the ideas, but I don't. I'm not a manager. I'm not going to decide on 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 teams. And so there are aspects of team topologies that anyone can start with, like the team API. Right, a, a team can decide we want to make it clear for other teams how do we what do we what what is our purpose how do we like to communicate and what practices we follow so we start making this sort of interactions with other teams clear even if we're just part of a individual team we do actually have uh, we've got a lot of stuff on our github uh, if you go to github.com slash team topologies you find find a whole lot of open source kind of well creative commons materials on there free to use basically you've got like a template library for drawing We've got we got example playbook type uh, material, so have a look there, and there's there's a lot of material to get started and be inspired. We've also got some infographics. If you head to teamtopologies.com/infographics, you'll find a couple of. At the moment, we've got two infographics online that should give you some ideas for getting started too. We are working on some more comprehensive kind of getting started or or what we're calling pathway materials, a kind of combination of different suggestions, depending on, on what, what your challenge is. So that the, those pathways will be coming out over the, the, the rest of 2021 and into 2022. We'll be right back after this short break. Have you heard about Interact yet? Built by engineering leaders for engineering leaders, our first Dev Interrupted conference features speakers from Twitter, Microsoft, Lightrix, Insights, Treeverse, Linear B, and more with interactive sessions and continuous community. And sponsored by Linear B in partnership with DZone and Daily.dev, you don't want to miss this free virtual event on September 30th. Learn more at devrinterrupted.com slash interact or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you there. One of the topics that keeps coming up, you're talking about boundaries or trust boundaries and how organizational trust boundaries should inform business decision-making. I believe you've highlighted that smaller teams with high trust lead to fast flow. Matthew, can you talk about 
that a little bit more for us? Yeah. So if we want a fast flow of change, we need to look at the, the human conditions under which that can take place. And one of the most important uh, factors for a group of people mm-hmm. being able to make decisions quickly and, and so on is to have high degree of trust. And it turns out that as human beings, there are some kind of natural, if you like, natural boundaries for trust in terms of the size of the group that we're in. And this seems to relate to our whatever anthropological heritage going back millions of years, whatever. The details at one level don't, the details are super interesting, but uh, they don't really matter. What we need to do is to try and assess and understand where the, these boundaries seem to be. And this is where research from Robin Dunbar comes in. He has looked at trust boundaries in, in, in human beings and actually in other, pri- in other primates to try and assess, look at these different kind of groupings. There's a, it seems to relate to how many kind of relationships we can really maintain as human beings with other people. And there are several of these boundaries. The most famous one is at around about 150 people. That's what has been called Dunbar's number. We seem to be able to maintain, it seems to, we can't generally maintain more than about 150 kind of relationships of, of a meaningful type. And that even applies to online as well, even applies to things like Facebook and, and Twitter and what have you. The, he, he, the original research was done on in, in kind of face-to-face relationships, but did repeated the research with online in online settings, and looked at the actual interactions that, that were happening rather than just the number of friends on Facebook you have, which is not massively meaningful. So the implications of all this kind of research are that there are different kind of a bit like an onion. Imagine an onion; you chop it in half, you see all the different rings, the circles of the inside the onion, and we've got something similar in in social situations where there are different kind of trust boundaries at the very middle of the onion, if you like, or the organisation. You've got trust boundaries around about something like the research is is difficult to pin down but it's somewhere around five perhaps eight people is extremely high trust and therefore if we've got extremely high trust in that unit if we can develop extremely high trust in that unit we're able to move very quickly now in in some organizations they find that they could actually have slightly larger groupings maybe up to about 15 people and still move very quickly fine okay if you've got the organizational context to do that's fine but there does seem to be a bit of a boundary around about 15 people if you think about it there's almost no sports uh, in the world that have more than 15 people on the field. Australian rules football, it seems to be one, but that's, we, we can make an excuse for the Australians. Right? I'm joking. I'm joking. But pretty, if you think about kind of American football, there's, I think, is it, would it be fair to say there's kind of three different groups in rugby, obviously from the UK, there's two different, two different groups inside a single team on the field. There's forward and back and so on. And so we have to be have to be mindful of these kind of trust boundaries when we're thinking about different groups in the organization if we want to maintain a fast flow of change. So it helps us to think about if if we want this fast flow and trust is a key enabler for fast flow then we need to start looking at trust boundaries and the implications. Excellent. And Manuel, you talked a little bit about cognitive load and limiting that how do you know if a team has reached that cognitive load and what do you do in that situation if the load is too high? Yeah, it's a good question. So effectively, you pointed to the fact that we, we need to start by assessing what is the cognitive load on teams, right? It's one of the things that many people identify very um, strongly with what we talk in the book about team cognitive load. And they say, yes, my team is overloaded. 
there's so much we need to be aware of. There's so much we're supposed to be responsible for, uh, but we don't have the bandwidth. And that's because their cognitive load is, is being is way too high. We actually have, so Matthew mentioned the GitHub repositories at github.com slash team topologies. There's one around, which has an example of a simple uh, survey that we can run with teams to, tr- it's effectively more of a conversation starter that we start discussing what are the things that are complicated for you in terms of that end-to-end ownership of the service. Is it difficult to test or is it difficult to support your service or is it difficult to understand if the, what you're building is helpful or not for the customers? So it can be a variety of things where uh, the team is struggling. And obviously also we might have a team that has too much, too large part of a system that they're responsible for. So if basically there's too much code that you need to be uh, responsible for, then you probably don't have enough understanding to actually support it effectively. So when problems happen, you're probably going to be struggling a little bit to to fix them effectively in, in, in a fast way. So we have this team cognitive load assessment example you need to adapt it to your own context, right? So there, there will be some things which are specific to your business, things that teams should know that you want to assess if, if they have a problem with. But then you have all the sort of more technical aspects of, of the software lifecycle that are more common across different organizations. So you can start by assessing the cognitive load on teams. You start identifying some sort of trends where, oh, yeah, actually, it seems like different multiple teams are struggling with, I don't know, with the with scaling the applications or uh, monitoring or whatever it might be. And so it looks like we either need to help them gain more awareness and knowledge around these areas, or maybe they need some helpful platform services to, so they have less to worry about. So they can rely on platform that is built as a product for those teams to consume. So we, depending on where the cognitive load is too high, what is causing that, then we might have different approaches which are effectively why we have the supporting types of teams that we talked earlier and interaction uh, modes to to get the evolution of of the teams and reducing cognitive load. And then there are other things like the team API also helps reduce cognitive load for other teams to understand how do we work? How can they communicate with us? Do we, what kind of channels we prefer or when are we available? These sort of things also reduces cognitive load in, in terms of communication between different teams. I think most of the, the patterns and, and ideas we talk about in the book that can be applied are effectively helping minimize cognitive load for some of, of the teams in the organization. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that with us. And now the other thing, Manuel, that you've brought up a few times here is Conway's Law. And kind of a, a high level way to understand that is the way that your teams are set up will reflect in the way that the software is architected and built. Some of our listeners may not be fully familiar with this. Can you break it down a little bit for us? Yeah, I like how Michael Nigar talks about that. So he wrote the book, Release It, which is also you know, a strong reference for us. And he says, when you deliver a product to your, to your clients, you're actually, or you deploy the product, you're actually deploying your organizational structures in it. So that kind of, <laughs> I think, gives a, a more kind of visual idea of, of what Conway's law is, which is coming from a paper by Mel Conway in 1968. So it's nothing uh, recent, but especially with the rise of microservices, there was a lot more attention put into it. Partially, I think, because many organizations tried microservices expecting it would help them to go in a 
to go faster and everything is going to you know go much smoother but actually if you don't align the the team structures and the communications between teams to actually match the system architecture then the team structures have more influence in the end right what the system you are able to build and deliver looks more like the structures you have in the organization than whatever sort of idealized architecture you designed in in the beginning and so that's what Conway's law is telling us that we cannot it's not a one to one relationship but we cannot um expect to build some system architecture without thinking of which team structures and and communication makes sense to make that happen and enable that to happen it's not that we cannot build this architecture that we designed but it might cost a lot more it might be a lot more challenging if the teams are not organized in a way that supports the architecture so what you mentioned earlier if you have separate qa teams and you have separate um teams for different functions and that's not going to help you achieve fast flow and teams that can build different parts of the system more effectively and 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 faster and matthew following up on that how can you use the reverse Conway approach that you outline to produce software system architectures that are sustainable by an organization? So the idea with this reverse Conway is if there is this mirroring effect between the communication pathways between different parts of the organization and the likely software architectures can be produced, then, hey, why don't we work out what kind of architecture we want and then change our organization to reflect that. So at least we're not fighting against Conway's law. That's the principle. Now, just changing your organization communication pathways and things doesn't guarantee that you'll get better architecture. There's a whole bunch of stuff you've got to do. You've got to be technically competent and so on. But at least at least we're not acting against that force. <clears throat> now, it could be quite challenging, right? Because the current organization is likely to have built software which is which perhaps is not optimized for fast flow of change, in which case if you change the organization first, you have to be ready and willing to change the the software architecture. So that kind of implied, are you going to do that in a big bang approach or are you going to take it piece by piece? Are you going to do it piece by piece because big bang is almost certainly never going to work for lots of reasons. So you're expecting an incremental approach to, to reverse Conway anyway start with one service perhaps, change how the teams are arranged around that, or start with, with one domain or one part of the organization or one part of the, the product or whatever. And make sure you're measuring the outcomes. The thing, use things like the four key metrics from Accelerate book, State of Devils Report. And we generally recommend using those four key metrics, which is lead time, deployment frequency, mean time to recovery and change fail percentage, but also add on flow efficiency. We talked about that before. So the amount of time the team actually spends doing work compared to not doing work. That's a starting point. There are other metrics that you'd want in place, but the, but the, those are starting points which actually work pretty well. But the organization needs to expect to invest in substantial technical skills to be able to make that kind of architecture switch. But also the organization really needs to understand its business domain. The organization needs to understand if it's a for-profit company, the organization needs to understand how it actually makes money, which parts of its business domain actually make money. And you'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, how many organizations really can't answer that question. They don't know which features or which products or which bits of their kind of system actually are are super valuable and which parts actually either have a neutral effect or even uh, cause a reduction in revenue. And yeah, but loads of organizations don't even, forget about the revenue, loads of organizations don't even understand what the purpose of that organization is, that there's a real lack of clarity of purpose, a real lack of clarity of terminology from a business perspective. 
And that's where approaches like domain-driven design are really important, DDD. Because the purpose of domain-driven design at one level is to untangle the business concepts to enable us to write software in a way which is, is less tangled. If the business domain, if the business concepts are tangled, we are going to write tangled software, guarantee. So untangle the business concepts so that we've got a, a fighting chance of writing software which is also untangled and therefore enables a faster flow of change. So you've got to invest, the organization got to invest in, in areas outside of kind of technology as well. As in, they've got to have a commitment to untangling their business concepts and understanding how, how their business actually works. And you'd be surprised, maybe, again, maybe not. Plenty of organizations don't really understand that. <laughs> and they're going to struggle. So it, it needs some commitment. If you want to go, for, if you want to go quickly, you're going to have to invest. Yeah, super interesting stuff. I want to thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the pod today and telling us more about team topologies and also how we can improve and get to a more streamlined approach. No problem. It's been, been great to be here. We'd just like to, again, the Team Supporters Academy. So if you go to academy.teamsupporters.com, you'll get there. And over time, there'll be more and more uh, courses that people can take, all self-paced video training, all either featuring me and Manuel, or at the very least curated by, by me and Manuel from a very strong team topologies perspective. Yeah. And the other reference is teamtopologies.com that we mentioned. So all the creative comments and examples and infographics is all there. Absolutely. Yeah. So everyone who's listening, definitely check out Team Topologies Academy and teamtopologies.com and be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community. That's where we keep this type of conversation going all week long. You can find all of this information in the links below. And guys, thanks again for coming on the pod. No problem. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. Have you heard about Interact yet? Built by engineering leaders for engineering leaders, our first Dev Interrupted conference features speakers from Twitter, Microsoft, Lightrix, Insights, Treeverse, Linear B, and more. With interactive sessions and continuous community. And sponsored by Linear B in partnership with Bzone and Daily.dev, you don't want to miss this free virtual event on September 30th. Learn more at devinterrupted.com slash interact or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you there.